Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, June 28th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This, this uh, live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. Now, since the beginning of January, I've been holding these uh, weekly live stream broadcasts every Thursday evening to uh, try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And usually I try to cover everything significant that's happened at the court in the past week. But because this was the last week of the term and there was just so much happening at the court, I decided to break things up a bit this week. And so I, I actually had two live streams earlier this week on Monday night. I uh, did a, a live stream covering the four decisions issued by the court last Friday, June 22nd. And then on Wednesday night, that's yesterday, I did another live stream covering the six opinions the court issued this week on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week. Now, if you want to hear about those cases, and this includes some very big ones, the big high-profile cases that all, all came down at the end of the term, then please uh, check out the last two episodes available on uh, the Counting to Five YouTube page or through the uh, audio podcast. Um, but tonight... Uh, we're, we're not going to talk too much about the cases. We're going to wrap things up at, with a look back at the just completed term, a look ahead to next year's term, and a short discussion of the, the biggest news of the week, and that's yesterday's retirement announcement from Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, so that's, that's basically what's on deck for, uh, for tonight's, uh, live stream. Now, if you're watching live, uh, as always, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to uh, keep an eye on that and answer questions as they come up. So here's what I plan to cover. First, I'm going to kind of close out the term by talking about uh, some of the news, orders, and summary opinions that came out of the court over the past week. Um, and there, there was a number of uh, just... Uh, uh, low, lower profile, uh, kind of small opinions related to orders or summary decisions. And so I'll, I'll be talking about each of those. Um, then I'm just going to take kind of a brief look back at the term as a whole, just a kind of a, a big picture, um, uh, look at that. And after that, I'm going to move ahead to next term. I'm going to quickly preview the new cases the court granted this week, uh, for next term. And there were quite a few of them. The court uh, significantly increased, um, the docket for next year, uh, this week. Uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll just, take a, a look uh, at how the next term is, is shaping up so far. Um, then I want to talk a little bit about the immediate future, what to expect and what to look for as the court moves into its summer recess. And then finally, we'll finish by uh, spending a few minutes to talk about Justice Anthony Kennedy and his retirement uh, and what's to come there. We'll look back at his career, look ahead at what's coming next uh, for the Supreme Court. So um, let's get started. Uh, first, before I get into the, the, uh, court's business, just a quick milestone. Um, this Saturday, June 23rd was Clarence Thomas's 70th birthday. And uh, this is, I think this is important to, to, it's, you know, milestone year, but it's important to pay attention to, um, when we're, 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 you know, thinking about, uh, you know, retirement and, uh, and, uh, Anthony Kennedy, who's 81 years old, uh, leaving the court. Now, at 70 years old, um, Clarence Thomas is, is, is already at an age when, when many people, Especially, uh, many government employees have already retired. Um, in fact, there are at least five U.S. states where 70 years old is the mandatory retirement age for judges. Um, but here on this, this Supreme Court, uh, he's, you know, um, until, uh, at least until Kennedy's, uh, departure at the end of the month or at the end of July, uh, Thomas is only the fourth oldest justice. We've got, um, Justice Ginsburg, who's 85 years old. Kennedy, who's 81, but leaving the court. Breyer, who's 79 years old and turning 80 later this summer. 
Um, and it's just, this is kind of a, an interesting artifact of, of just the, the, the life tenure. Um, and, uh, the, the fact that these judges have these positions for life if they want it, uh, they can stay in the court, uh, as long as they, um, uh, as they want to. And there's, uh, really no way, uh, to remove them if they, uh, uh, if they are uh, still happy to do the job. Um, and you see this also in the lower federal courts. There's multiple current federal judges uh, serving in the lower courts that are over 90 years old right now. Uh, that includes uh, Judge uh, Jack Weinstein, who's a highly influential uh, federal district judge in the Eastern District of New York, who's, who's right now 96 years old, but is still very active. And only about two weeks ago, issued an opinion uh, uh, related to qualified immunity that was getting a lot of attention in the legal press. So 96 years old and still, still very active and still out there. Um, and it's just, uh, it's kind of an artifact of this system, the life tenure system, which, which is extremely unusual. It's, it's more or less unique to the federal judiciary. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not something that's seen in, in general in the state judiciaries or in other countries. Um, and, uh, so again, Thomas just turned 70 years old next in line after Thomas in terms of, terms of age is Justice Alito, who's 68 years old. So he's in the middle of the pack on the court. He's still more than a, a decade away from his, uh, you know, octogenarian colleagues. But again, at 68 years old, he's already older than many retired professionals. Um, and it's just kind of a reminder that the, the longevity of the court's oldest members can kind of skew our perspective on the likelihood that the relatively speaking younger members of the court might choose to retire or might suffer from serious health problems associated with aging that might lead them to uh, have to leave the court, things like that. Um, and uh, it's just just something to think about. As a, a final note, uh, there was another birthday this week. Justice Sotomayor also had a birthday and turned 64 on Monday. So she's in the court's younger half, but is herself only a year away from, you know, Medicare eligibility. So it's just, uh, putting things in perspective on the, uh, the, the age of these, uh, uh, justices on the court. So let's move on to the court's business. On Monday this week, the court issued its usual order list following last week's private conference. So that order list includes a bunch of, uh, interesting orders, including grants of seven new cases for next term. Um, and, uh, and, and, and one opinion uh, relating to an order, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. But this morning, uh, this is Thursday, June 28th, the court, uh, following yesterday's closing out of the term, the, the issuance of the final opinions in argued cases, um, this morning the court issued a, a, a kind of a final orders list. It's, it's uh, usually referred to as the cleanup orders list. And this is a final set of orders kind of wrapping up various pieces of business before the justices leave town for the summer. Um, but it, there's also uh, some interesting, uh, interesting stuff in here. Um, there's uh, several summary decisions, other opinions related to orders, and the court granted seven more cases today uh, for next term. Um, so I'm going to kind of talk about a bunch of this stuff. Uh, I'll kind of run through the highlights of the uh, the orders, um, orders and opinions uh, from the, the last week, or from you know Monday and uh, t- and today this week. Now. Um, first, the, the orders list, it contains a number of GVRs. Now, I, I've talked about this a few times before, but GVR stands for Grant, Vacate, and Remand. And this is when the court, there's a petition for the court to hear a case, and the court takes that petition and grants the petition solely for the purpose of um, wiping out the lower court opinion and immediately sending it back, basically, for a do-over in the lower court. Um, now, why does the court do this? It's most commonly, it's because the Supreme Court decided 
decided a case that changes the legal landscape um, and that's uh, that's uh, related to the case, the, the petition that's uh, that's before the court. So the court basically will send the case back to the lower court to let the lower court determine whether the new Supreme Court case um, changes the results or, or the uh, the uh, analysis in, in that case. And um, and and it can go either way. Sometimes uh, it does. Sometimes the lower court will have to uh, reverse or or revise in a major way um, its opinion that it issued because of the new Supreme Court opinion. Sometimes it doesn't make much difference at all. The lower court may basically reissue, reissue its previous opinion essentially unchanged, uh, and the case will end up just popping right back up to the Supreme Court a short time afterward. And just as an example of how, of how this often goes, uh, last Friday the court. Um, decided, among other cases, decided Carpenter v. United States. And that was a case about the legality of um, warrantless access by law enforcement to um, cell site location data. Um, in today's orders, these cleanup orders, there are six different cases that were GVR'd, that's granted, granted, vacated, and remanded in light of, of Carpenter. So presumably, I haven't looked into these cases, but presumably each of these cases either involves police access to cell site location data or maybe a closely related topic like access to other digital records held by a third party. So the court's just uh, sending these cases back down because the Carpenter decision may fully resolve those cases or at least significantly change the legal analysis. Now, I'm mentioning this, usually don't talk much about these GVRs because they're, they're fairly routine and not that interesting, but there's two GVRs that are of some interest in Monday's order list this week. Um, one is the case called Rucho v. Common Cause, and this is a case, it's a case out of North Carolina, and it's a political gerrymandering case. Now, uh, as you, you may um, remember, this, this term, the court had two um, partisan gerrymandering cases on its docket this year. It was Gil v. Whitford out of Wisconsin and Benesek v. Limon out of Maryland. Um, and the court has been holding this North Carolina case, Rucho v. Common Cause, uh, pending uh, the, the decision of those of those other partisan gerrymandering cases. Now, you may recall the court uh, got rid of those two partisan gerrymandering cases without deciding very much about the constitutionality of political gerrymanders. The, the Maryland case, Benesek v. Limon, was um, disposed of basically on procedural grounds without touching the underlying gerrymander issue. And Gil v. Whitford, the Wisconsin case, it was decided on grounds of standing. That is, that the, the challengers to electoral map weren't the, the right people uh, with the right kind of legal injury to raise the claims that they had brought. Now, after Gilvey Whitford was decided, the challengers in this North Carolina case filed a supplemental brief with the court arguing that, that standing pro- problems that the court had found in Gilvey Whitford didn't apply in this North Carolina case. So they said there's no need to remand this case. Um, this, this case uh, doesn't have those problems that the court found in, in Gilvey Whitford. So the court should you know, now still hear this case. Um, the state responded to that, um, arguing the opposite, saying that, that there, there was a standing issue. Um, and on Monday this week, the court vacated and remanded that case, the North Carolina case, in light of Gilvey Whitford. Now, just just as a technical matter, this this isn't technically a GVR, grant vacant remand. It's just a vacate and remand because these elect- election districting cases, gerrymandering cases, and the like, they come to the court on direct appeal. Um, not on these cert petitions. So they get appealed directly up to the Supreme Court. The court doesn't have a choice of whether to 
grant these cases or not. Um, so the, the court doesn't ha- have to grant these cases and vacate and remand. They already have the case on appeal, so they just vacate and remand, uh, and 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 that's that. So that's that's the one, uh, the this North Carolina partisan gerrymandering case. And the other one that was interesting on the same day was a case called Arlene's Flowers v. Washington. Now this is a case about a florist who refused to make flower arrangements for a same-sex wedding ceremony. Um, and uh, there's obvious uh, similarity to the issue in the case uh, of Masterpiece Cake Shop, the, the big um, case about a baker who refused to make a, a cake for a same-sex wedding uh, celebration. Um, now, if, if you may recall that in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the court didn't decide the primary free speech and religious free exercise questions in the case, the questions that the court had granted the, the case to, to uh, hear, but instead decided on the basis of a uh, anti-religious hostility on the part of the state's civil rights commission. So it's so kind of sidestepped the main issues that had been presented and, uh, and, uh, and decided on this, uh, these other grounds. Um, well, the florist in the Arlene's Flowers case filed a supplemental brief after Masterpiece was decided, asking the court to remand the case for reconsider, for consideration by the state, by the, uh, the, the lower court, um, to consider this, uh, anti-religious, uh, hostility issue that, that, uh, that the court decided in Masterpiece Cake Shop. The state responded that that issue, this anti-religious hostility issue, just wasn't really an issue in the case. It wasn't implicated, and there's no reason for the court to, uh, remand the case. But on Monday, the court GVR'd that case in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. So, uh, it's interesting because Masterpiece and Gilvey Whitford, they've both been characterized as cases where the court um, it ended up basically ducking the major issue that was presented to it, um, and just, and getting rid of the case on, on other grounds. Now, the North Carolina gerrymandering case and the Arlene's Flowers cases, they looked like they could be potential vehicles for the court to take another crack at each of these subjects. They looked like, uh, well, you know, the court found reasons why Masterpiece and Gill weren't, uh, weren't the right cases. Well, here's another set of cases with the same issues. Maybe these are the right cases. But the court vacated and remanded suggests you know, maybe one of the explanation is just there's really no appetite on the court to take on these topics right now. And the court was uh, happy to duck these cases and happy to have an excuse to um, get them back off its docket again. But that's likely only to be a temporary thing. Both of these cases are likely to make their way back before the court relatively soon, just with a, a detour um, back in the lower courts first. So just an interesting thing to notice. Now, Another uh, interesting thing, this this is on uh, today's uh, orders list. There was a, a summary affirmance of a case called Harris v. Cooper. Now, this is another, um, it's another election districting case. And as I mentioned, these um, come up on direct appeal to the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court doesn't have a choice whether to, um, whether they can't, the court can't just deny these cases and choose not to to hear them. They, they, uh, they have to. Um, decide the cases. Um, the court does not, however, have to issue an opinion. And what happened here is this case came up to the Supreme Court and the court issued a summary affirmance. So just a one line order just saying that, that this case was affirmed. Now, what is this case? Well, it's a challenge to North Carolina congressional districts, uh, challenging them as partisan gerrymandering, gerrymanders. So it's a, a, a very close case to that Rucho v. Common Cause case that the court just, um, remanded, vacated and remanded. Um, but in this case, um, the, the, what happened below was the district court below, uh, rejected the partisan gerrymandering challenge, uh, under both an equal protection theory and a first amendment theory, um, said that there was basically no discernible standards, 
that the court could use to determine whether there was uh, unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering. Um, and the uh, appeal was taken to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court just issued this summary affirmance. There was no opinion. There were no noted dissents. Um, what does this mean? Well, it, it, technically it means the court agrees with the lower court's results. So the outcome of the lower court's case it agrees with, but it doesn't necessarily endorse the reasoning and the opinion of the lower courts. It's saying, oh, the lower court got it right, but it isn't expressing an opinion one way or the other on whether the actual legal reasoning in the lower court's case was right. But what, what does this all mean? It, it seems kind of odd in light of that vacate and remand in the Russo case only a few days Earlier, so there's a question about whether, you know, the lower courts will read this, uh, this affirmance, this summary affirmance as, um, as kind of saying, you know, indicating something more about the court's views on whether these are, uh, whether, you know, there are, whether these are claims that the courts can even hear. Um, but it was just a, it was kind of an, an odd development, you know, no, no opinion attached to it, so a little hard to, um, read the tea leaves on what that's, what that's supposed to mean. Now, uh, another uh, another order issued this week was was related to uh, another uh, death penalty stay application. And again, this is a regular part of the court's business. I've talked about these uh, off and on uh, numerous times in these weekly live streams. There hasn't been one for a few weeks, but there was a execution scheduled for yesterday. And this was uh, the uh, the um, convicted. Uh, uh, inmate was named Danny Bible and, um, he was in, uh, Texas de- death row and he had been convicted, uh, for a 1979, uh, rape and murder of a young woman with an ice pick. And, and he had been dubbed by the media, the ice pick killer, um, because of this. Now later he, he committed multiple additional rapes and murdered several other people, including an infant. So he had quite a, uh, uh, quite an ugly, um, uh, criminal history here. Um, but the, the stay application to the Supreme Court was based on an Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment, uh, challenge. And the facts as alleged in his uh, stay application were that he's, uh, he's, he's getting older. He's 66 years old at, at, at present and suffers from an array of health problems. Here, here's how they were described, um, in, the uh, the stay application it said he suffers from heart failure, coronary artery disease, peripheral artery disease, chronic venous insufficiency, poor circulation, Parkinson's disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, obstructive sleep apnea, paralysis, gastroesophageal reflux disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and a blood clotting disorder. Now, uh, apparently, uh, supposedly, as as a result of all these uh, these various health problems, he had severely compromised veins, and the allegation was that it would be unlikely that um, the uh, the personnel uh, conducting the execution would be able to establish a, an IV um, for for the lethal injection, and the argument was that in his specific uh, due to his specific um, medical uh, characteristics, lethal injection would be a cruel and unusual punishment as applied to him. Um, and he had argued that uh, the state should have to use some alternative to lethal injection. And the state had responded that, that lethal injection was the only approved method of execution, and they had um, you know, contested his factual claims. Um, yesterday, the Supreme Court denied this stay application. Um, there was no uh, no noted dissents and no opinion. Um, and last night, he was executed. Apparently, there were, were uh, no apparent um, complications with the execution, and the execution went ahead last night. Um, one more uh interesting development in a case that I'd like to discuss. And this is a case I discussed this last week on last week's um, live stream. And this is a case of Sessions v. City of, of Chicago. 
And this is litigation about the Trump administration's uh, sanctuary city policies, uh, so-called. Um, and what, what had happened is in the, uh, the, the, the court, in this case, had issued a nationwide injunction um, barring the Trump administration from implementing this policy. Um, now, the, the, the party in this case was the city of Chicago, but the injunction uh, was barring the um, – the federal government from uh, from applying this this policy nationwide. Now, um, the 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 government had um, applied had made an application to this to the Supreme Court for a stay of this application, not with respect to the city of Chicago, but with respect to um, every place outside of Chicago, arguing basically that it was improper for the court to um, to have its injunction apply uh, beyond the party the actual parties to the case. Um, now, what had happened is. Earlier, Justice Kagan, who was the circuit justice assigned to the particular um, geographical re- region, this is the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals region, um, Justice Kagan had ordered uh, a response from the city to be filed by yesterday. However, on Tuesday, um, after the Trump v. Hawaii decision was issued, that's the, the travel ban litigation, that, that decision included a concurrence by Justice Thomas that was criticizing the uh, increasing uh, use of these nationwide or universal injunctions. Um, and after that opinion was issued, the Court of Appeals below modified the injunction in this um, uh, city of Chicago case uh, so that it only applied to Chicago and it no longer applied. I apologize for the technical difficulties there. My feed cut out briefly. I hope you're still with me. Um, but I was saying that um, the Court of Appeals modified the injunction so it only applied to the city of Chicago. And uh, after that happened yesterday, um, uh, uh, the Attorney General Sessions filed a letter with the Supreme Court withdrawing the application for a stay. Uh, it was no longer necessary now that the injunction had been modified. So that was uh, just an interesting development in that case. I had flagged that case last week, and now uh, that uh, issue has gone away there. So uh, let's move on to some opinions. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in previous episodes, I've already talked about all of the uh, major the opinions in argued cases, the the big uh, cases on the court's docket. But this week there were a few um, uh, there, there were several opinions related to orders. So this is opinions uh, the justices write when they want to uh, express some uh, some uh, disagreement or or comment on uh, one of these uh, orders that the court is issuing, and a few summary decisions where the court decides a case without any extra briefing or oral argument. So I'm going to kind of briefly run through each of these. Now, on Monday, there's a case called Pede v. Jones, and Justice Sotomayor issued a statement respecting the denial of of, uh, of the petition. And that was joined by Justice Ginsburg. Now, a statement respecting denial is when a justice isn't dissenting, so they're not disagreeing with the court's uh, decision not to take a case, but they're, they feel that there's something more needs to be said about the particular case. Now, this was a habeas corpus case. Um, specifically, it was a challenge uh, alleging the ineffective assistance of counsel um, by a failure to present mitigating evidence uh, at trial. Um, and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had uh, rejected this claim, saying that uh, there was no prejudice. Now, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, one of the things that has to be proven is that the criminal defendant was actually prejudiced. That means um, things would have come out differently had the attorney uh, um, performed 
uh, effectively performed at a proper level of competence. Um, and the 11th Circuit says here uh, he, he failed to show um, that he was prejudiced. He failed to show that things would have happened differently. Um, and part of the reason was that the mitigating evidence that he, he says should have been presented was what the, the 11th Circuit characterized as a double-edged sword. It, it, had, it had aspects that could have helped him, but aspects that also may have hurt him um, and made the jury regard him as uh, as in some way more culpable. Now, Justice Sotomayor argues, she says that this double-edged sword rule that the 11th Circuit applies actually contradicts Supreme Court precedent, um, and it, it doesn't follow the, the court's, uh, um, uh, the court's uh, rulings that, that you need to consider the t- totality of the evidence when considering the effect of mitigating evidence. But she suggests that review of this case uh, is actually barred by um, a law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. She says here, uh, here's a quote, she says, Considering the posture of this case under which our review is constrained by the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, I cannot conclude the particular circumstances here warrant this court's intervention. Now, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act is referred to as short, in short as AEDPA or EDPA for short. That's kind of the... the uh, short version of that. Um, the legal standard in that, in that is that in order to overturn, um, the, the uh, a, uh, state court's, de- uh, determination, um, the, the federal court in these habeas proceedings has to find that there was an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, and so Sotomayor seems to be suggesting that, uh, that this case doesn't meet that standard, that it wouldn't meet the standard of violating, uh, clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court. Um, it's just, it's a little, uh, odd to me, um, because she suggested earlier in this short opinion that, uh, that the, uh, rule applied by the 11th Circuit actually contradicted Supreme Court precedent. So it seemed like, uh, uh, she was suggesting otherwise, but um, that's that's that opinion. So moving on, uh, I'm moving on to some orders that came down on Thursday, and one was in a case called uh, E.I. Dupont de, de Nemours and Co. v. Smiley, uh, and this was a statement respecting denial by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Ju- Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas. So again, this is a this is a statement respecting the denial of a petition. It's not a dissent. Uh, but just an additional comment relating to it. Now, this is a case about uh, courts giving deference to a agency, a, fe- a, a, a um, federal agency, the a p- position taken by that federal agency for the first time during the course of litigation. And um, there are various deference doctrines um, in administrative law. And these are rules about um, the way courts are supposed to defer to certain um, determinations by administrative agencies about what particular laws or regulations, how those laws or regulations should be interpreted, what they should be interpreted to mean. Um, and this case is about one particular type of deference that's referred to as Skidmore deference. Um, and that's generally, it's basically the weakest form of, of deference um, and it's it's uh, often regarded as not really you know deference at all, but just common sense. It basically tells courts to uh, weigh the agency's um, um, the agency's, agency's interpretation based on a consideration of the reasoning involved, the level of expertise, and various other other factors. Um, but Justice Gorsuch says here, and this is this is uh, some quotes from his opinion. He says, "Quote: Skidmore deference only makes a difference when the court would not otherwise reach the same interpretation as the agency." 
So he's he's saying here, you know, even if this is a weakest form of deference, you know, if if it if it means anything, you know, it has to make a difference sometime. Um, and he asks a number of questions, and his specific concern here is when an agency during the course of litigation um, uh, asserts an interpretation of a rule and then um, demands uh, uh, deference from the court in uh, in adopting that interpretation. And so Gorsuch basically asks a number of kind of um, rhetorical questions about this. He says, first, how are people to know if their conduct is permissible when they act if the agency will only tell them later during litigation? Don't serious equal protection concerns arise when an agency advances an interpretation only in litigation with full view of who would benefit and who would be harmed? Might the practice undermine the Administrative Procedure Act's structure by incentivizing agencies to regulate by amicus brief rather than by rule? And should we be concerned that some agencies have apparently become particularly aggressive in attempting to mold statutory interpretation and establish policy by filing friend of the court briefs in private litigation? And he, he says that he says that there's a clear circuit split. Um, uh, that's a divide between different courts of appeals on, on this issue, on whether deference is, is, uh, should be given in these situations and, and concludes saying, I believe this circuit split and these questions warrant this court's attention. If not in this case, then hopefully soon. Now, it's uh, interesting again because this is, again is a statement respecting the denial. It's not framed as a dissent. He, he doesn't say he's disagreeing with the decision not to take this case, but he doesn't explain anywhere why he doesn't dissent, why he why, if there is some reason that he agrees that this isn't the right case to answer that that question, um, so that's just a uh, a little mystery there that isn't isn't answered there. So moving on to the next case, this is a case called Rowan County v. Lund, and here this is a dissent from the denial of a case by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch. Now this is an establishment clause challenge to the, a county board of commissioners practice of, of having um, commissioner-led prayers at the beginning of uh, their public meetings. And um, Justice Thomas says that, that, that there's a, a circuit split about these legislator-led uh, legislator prayers, and uh, but he, he argues, he, he cites kind of a long tradition in the United States of these type of legislator-led prayers, points to the circuit split, and uh, he, he kind of opened up the decision by saying, quote, this court's establishment clause jurisprudence is in disarray. And he concludes by saying this court should have stepped in to resolve this conflict. So he says there's basically a circuit split there. He kind of indicates that he thinks that uh, um, his view is that the, the these uh, um, legislator-led prayers are um, under the court's uh, uh, cases and the long tradition these are um, should be allowed. But he notes that there's a circuit split and courts have come out in different ways on this. So um, that brings me to the next case. Uh, this is a case called uh, Koshal v. Indiana. And um, this is a, a dissent from denial by uh, – I'm sorry. This, this, is, this is an unusual case. This is a, a dissent from a GVR, a dissent from the decision to grant, vacate, and remand a case. It's written by Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas. Now, this particular case, this Koshal v. Indiana case – was GVR'd in light of a case called J. Lee v. United States. Now, that case, that J. Lee case, was a case about ineffective assistance of counsel with respect to taking a guilty plea. But Alito says here, the, the problem here is the, the, the lower court here, the Indiana Court of Appeals decision, uh, came a month after the Supreme Court had issued its J. Lee decision. So, so the Supreme Court had already issued its opinion in this J. Lee case before the Indiana court decided this this case um, and 
apparently this, this J. Lee case was actually argued, um, to the court below, um, and so, so it was a case that was already before this Indiana court. And so Alito basically says this is an inappropriate use of the GVR. The, G, the GVR process, this grant vacant remand, is supposed to be when there's been some intervening change of law um, between when when a case was decided by the lower court and um, and when the, it, you know it gets up to the Supreme Court. There's some, been some uh, change of law, so the court sends it back to give the court another chance to do it. But here he says there was no change. The Supreme Court's precedent was already on the books before the Indiana court did this. You know, so so presumably. If it was wrong and should be overturned as wrong, then that's one thing, but, but it shouldn't just be sent back as a do-over. That's not the way the court is supposed to do these things. Um, so that's that case. And then the final one here is, uh, it's a, a two consolidated cases, Jordan v. Mississippi and Evans v. Mississippi. And this is a dissent from the denial of these cases by Justice Breyer. And these are, are challenges. Uh, this is part of, um, a, uh, a theme Justice Breyer has been pushing for uh, a couple years now in a number of opinions, um, challenging the death penalties uh, overall as cruel and unusual punishment due to the manner of its um, of its uh, implementation in the United States. And so he points to a few different things. He has he, uh, he uh, a few things he's he's noted before. Um, that one is the the extensive period of delay between a, a sentence of death and the actual execution, and and Breyer has argued that this delay in itself makes it cruel and unusual, leaving someone on uh, death row and and in this kind of precarious position for such a lengthy period of time is uh, is cruel and inhumane. And in this particular case, uh, the one one of the uh, the uh, criminal defendants here, Jordan, is currently seventy two years old, but has been on death row for forty two years. Uh, so, you know, well over half his life has been spent on death row, uh, 42 years. And, uh, and Breyer kind of describes the isolated condition of death row and argues that this is, uh, you know, uh, maybe cruel and unusual punishment. He also brings another, uh, thing he's, he's, uh, discussed in previous opinions is the geographic arbitrariness of the, of, um, the application of, uh, capital sentences. And he notes that Increasingly, as uh, especially as the number of death sentences that are um, put into uh, effect each year has continued to dwindle and it's reached historic lows uh, in recent years, um, the the actual uh, death uh, um, the both death sentences that are imposed and the actual executions that are carried out are increasingly concentrated in a, a very small number of counties in a relatively small number of states. Um, and he says that this this kind of arbitrariness, where where just the the fact of which county someone is convicted in, um, is is more determinative than uh, other factors that relate to the actual culpability or severity of the crime. Uh, that, th- that this is another uh, factor that um, he has uh, uh, um, he has cited as as uh, as leading to the conclusion that it's cruel and unusual punishment. And he finally he concludes by uh, just a, a, another point that's not directly connected to these particular cases, but he talks about the unreliability of the uh, the capital um, uh, punishment process, and he points to some certain uh, recent uh, death row exonerations, including one case where apparently uh, the death sentence was stayed only four hours before execution. Um, and he concludes by saying, I remain of the view that the court should grant the petitions now before us to consider whether the death penalty as currently administered violates the Constitution's Eighth Amendment. So those are the opinions related to orders. I'm going to move on now and talk about, uh, there was three um, summary um, 
opinions that came down this morning, Thursday morning. Um, one is a case called uh, Sos v. Bauer. Um, this is a kind of a um, just an odd little case. So these are summary reversal, reversals. These are cases where the court has basically decided to reverse the decisions below without um, requiring full briefing and oral arguments. So they did, they've clear, they've decided that there's clear enough error below, and it's worth their time and effort to just reverse these cases. Um, uh, but without uh, taking them up as a, as a full um, case on its docket. Now, this is a case uh, where uh, about a uh, civil uh, civil rights claim brought against police officers and the mayor of a town, and it relates to alleged harassing behavior by the police. And the particular incident that's being complained of here is an incident where the police came into this woman's home, and when she attempted to kneel and pray, they ordered her to stop. And she brought a free exercise claim, uh, you know, that they were abridging her a free exercise of religion by stopping her from praying. Now, the lower court threw this case out. They said there was qualified immunity, which is just means that the police were not in violation of clearly established law, that there wasn't clearly established law. So there weren't like cases that directly showed that this was a violation of her rights. Now, the court doesn't in those cases doesn't in a qualified immunity case like that. The court typically doesn't decide whether there actually is a constitutional violation, just that the violation is not clearly established. Now, um, the court notes uh, what the court says here is that in fact, whether a police order interfering with prayer is is acceptable or violates some constitutional right depends on the specific circumstances involved. And they say that here, those specific circumstances are just unknown at this point. And here's here's a, a kind of a long quote from the opinion. It says, quote, as the case comes before us, it is unclear whether the police officers were in petitioner's apartment at the time in question based on her consent whether they had some other ground consistent with the Fourth Amendment for entering and remaining there, or whether their entry or continued presence was unlawful. Petitioner's complaint contains no express allegations on these matters, nor does her complaint state what, if anything, the author officers wanted her to do at the time when she was allegedly told to stop praying. Without knowing the answers to these questions, it is impossible to analyze petitioner's free exercise claim. But what the court says here is, this was a pro se complaint, meaning this was someone who was not represented by an attorney who brought this complaint. And the court says pro se complaints have to be interpreted liberally. Um, and uh, the court says this free exercise claim, it, it requires consideration of the circumstances of the officer's presence there. And so the court remands this step back to the lower court for further proceedings, basically to explore the circumstances surrounding this, uh, which the court says are necessary for determining the constitutional issue here. Uh, so moving on to the next case, a case called Sexton v. Baudreau. And this is a habeas corpus case, uh, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Um, and the, the, uh, the court here says basically the federal court failed to give proper deference to a state court's determination that there was no ineffective assistance of counsel. And the, the underlying issue here was in the case there were eyewitnesses that um, identified a shooter in a, a murder prosecution. They identified the shooter based on photographs. And the argument that was made was that the failure of the attorney to challenge the proceeding, the, the procedure of uh, showing these photographs as a suggestive procedure was ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, the state court here um, rejected that claim, but it was a summary denial, meaning the state just, court just rejected it, but without a reasoned opinion explaining why they were rejecting it. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in the federal system um, uh, overturned that, saying that, in fact, uh, it, it was ineffective assistance of counsel. 
Now, the court says basically here, this is reviewed, these these habeas corpus cases under that EDPA standard that I mentioned a little earlier here, where um, it's a highly deferential standard where uh, the state courts can only be overturned if uh, it was something that was contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. That's the, the basic standard. Or... Um, and 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 more moreover, where where you have a situ- situation like this, where there's no reasoned decision, so this is where it was a summary decision with no um, no opinion explaining it. The federal court quote must determine what arguments or theories could have supported the state court's decision, and then it must ask whether it is possible fair-minded jurors could disagree that those arguments or theories are inconsistent with the holding in a prior decision of this court. So, so there's this highly deferential standard where the court is supposed to try and uh, figure out if there is some uh, some viable argument or theory that would satisfy the standard of not being inconsistent with the Supreme Court. And um, the 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 argument here was um, the, the court uh, basically says that um, given the details and facts of this this eyewitness identification procedure, um, that that it could have been um, determined that, that uh, the counsel. Um, the counsel in the case below, the counsel that did not challenge these eyewitness identification procedures, um, could have reasonably determined that a, a motion to suppress the eyewitness identifications would have failed because under the totality of the circumstances, the identification was reliable. Um, and the court kind of recites various circumstances of the identification that would that would support a finding of reliability. And, but in doing this, the, the Supreme Court kind of slaps down the Ninth Circuit a little bit. It says, quote, the Ninth Circuit's opinion was not just wrong. It also committed fundamental errors that this court has repeatedly admonished courts to avoid. That could support the state's decision and failed to give proper deference to the state court. So just overturning that Ninth Circuit decision and um, allowing the... Um, the state court's determination that there was no independent assist, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, allowing that decision to stand. Now, Justice Breyer dissented without an opinion uh, from this, so just a one-line dissent saying he dissents from this. That's um, somewhat unusual in these uh, to uh, um, summary decisions to dissent without any opinion, but it does happen from time to time. Uh, and then the final of these summary decisions is a case called North Carolina v. Covington. And this is a racial gerrymandering case. It's been up to the Supreme Court before. And in previous uh, visits to the Supreme Court, um, the court had uh, the uh, lower courts had found that there was racial gerrymandering, and that had been affirmed by the Supreme Court. And the issue here is the remedial issue, meaning um, meaning how to uh, to get new maps in place to fix the racial gerrymandering pro- um, problem. Now, what happened is the 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 lower court here had identified. Uh, two separate problems. The, the, there were four districts where um, voters had been segregated on the basis of race. So it's a, just a, a racial gerrymandering problem in those four districts. Now, there were also five districts where there was an argument that those districts in, in this whole process where of, uh, of redrawing the maps to, to um, solve certain racial gerrymandering issues, five districts had been unnecessarily redrawn. And this is what happened is there's a violate, there's a state rule um, in North Carolina that prohibits mid-decade redistricting. And part of the purpose is just to prevent um, the parties in power from just continually redrawing mat- lines uh, every couple years just to try and keep giving themselves an advantage going forward. So the rule is basically you redraw the districts after the census every 10 years, and then you're supposed to leave them alone in between until the next census. And so five districts were redrawn when there was no need to do so. So this violated this state prohibition. Now, what the lower court had done was it appointed a special master to draw up a new map. 
Um, it determined that these challenges to the legislature's map, the, to the challenges to the four districts that were challenged as racial gerrymanders and the five districts that were challenged as violating the mid-decade redistricting, it, it said that those were valid challenges and it approved the special master's map that fixed the problems in these, these, uh, these various districts. Um, now, what the Supreme Court says is it affirms the district court with respect to the racially gerrymandered district. It says, yes, it, we affirm the, the, the decision of the, the district court below to approve the special master's redrawing of these racially gerrymandered districts. But it reverses as far as the mid-decade redistricting. And basically, it's basically saying there isn't any federal claim here and there's nothing the federal court should be involved in. The issue of whether the state legislature by redrawing parts of a map midterm, mid, uh, decade was violating state law. That's a state law issue and that's for, for, um, that's, that's not an issue for the federal court to deal with. Now, Justice Thomas issued a very short dissent in this case. So it's a, a per curiam unsigned opinion, a summary decision, except for Justice Thomas had a short dissent. And he just simply says, quote, I do not think the complicated factual and legal issues in this case should be disposed of summarily. I would have set this case for briefing and oral argument. So he doesn't think this was appropriate for summary disposition like this. Um, so that's, that, uh, kind of wraps up all of the, uh, orders and, uh, and, uh, um, you know, significant orders and, and these opinions for the term it gets us to the end of, uh, of the, the term's opinions. Um, you know, the, the, the theme of this year was there were, there were a ton of big high profile cases this year, way more than usual. Um, there was, depending on how you count, there was maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, depending on what you count as significant, but a very large number of cases that were just either very high profile, lots of media attention, um, very divisive, uh, th- those type of cases. Now, a few of those cases ended up being kind of uh, uh, fizzles at the end, Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Parson Gerrymandering cases. But the general theme for a lot of these high-profile cases was this was a big year for victories by the uh, uh, conservative um, wing of the Supreme Court. There were an unusual number of five to four splits along that ideological conservative liberal line, um, much more than usual, and that kind of coincided with this high number of very high-profile cases leading to a, a year where there was this, uh, kind of an especially lopsided um, result toward uh, the uh, conservative victories in the case. Now, you know, it wasn't a complete route in all of the court's cases, but a very high number of the most high-profile cases um, went toward the uh, conservative wing of the court this year. Um, so that's kind of just a, a real brief theme overall. Um, I want to now kind of pivot and look ahead to next term. Uh, I mentioned, I think, before that there were, between Monday morning's orders list and the orders uh, issued this morning, there were seven new grants on Monday and seven this morning. That's 14 new gra- cases granted this week, so quite a few. And that brings the total up to 37 cases granted so far for next term. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, but basically in order to, f- the, the court has to grant enough cases by the time it leaves at the end of June to fill up its fall calendar, uh, just, just for purposes of timing, to have enough time to have cases be fully briefed for oral argument. Um, the cases have to be, uh, granted by, uh, by, by now in order to make it onto the fall calendar, meaning the October, November, December argument calendars. Now, to fully fill those um, fall calendars, the court basically needs about 34 cases. And and w- what this basically means is the court hears argument seven months of the year, so October through April, and each month it hears two weeks of argument, and each week that it hears it, it sits for three days. And the court typically likes to hear two arguments 
on per argument day. Now, if you do do the math out from there, that that would be uh, you know that would result in 84 cases of, of 42 days of argument. But in fact, there's a few holidays in there, so there's really only about 39 days of argument for the whole term. So about 78 arguments would would fill the calendar for the court for a year, um, and. Of those argument days, there's there's 17 argument days in October, November, and December. Uh, one holiday, so so not 18, but 17 ar- days. So 34 um, argu- um, cases would fill up the fall calendar. Now, in the past uh, several years, the court has had a light fall calendar, less than 34 cases. Um, it, it hasn't had enough cases granted by the end of the term to fill up that fall calendar. And this has, resu- has resulted in the court kind of trying to um, bulk up its calendar in the spring and having a much heavier spring calendar. And this uh, contributes to the, the backloading of the, the court's term where it, it uh, kind of exacerbates the crunch that, that the court has every year in June as it tries to get all of its opinions uh, finished and, and issued before it leaves for, this, for the summer. Um, and uh, a, a few years back, um, in an attempt to kind of alleviate this this backloading problem, the court had made some uh, some small attempts to to um, front load the term a little more. That it had added some additional arguments in the uh, in, in the um, in the fall, having some three argument days instead of two argument days to kind of load up the front of the term, uh, presumably in hopes that this would allow it to lighten this a little later in the term and uh, and get things done. Um, more easily space out their work a little more so they weren't so uh, crunched at the end of the term. Um, but this, uh, this kind of fell apart when the court's caseload continued to drop and it, and it, and it, uh, ended up not having enough cases to fill up the fall term. Uh, now that it actually has again, so, so this is the first time in several years that it's had, it has enough cases granted to fill up the fall term. It wouldn't be, uh, surprising if it, if it, uh, decides to fit a few more than 34 cases and, and it has 37 cases. It could put all 37 of those cases in the fall, um, uh, calendars to get a few more cases, uh, uh, decided earlier on, but, uh, that remains to be seen. Um, typically the October calendar will come out, uh, sometime in mid-July. So we don't know exactly on which cases will be up on the, uh, the October calendar yet. And then the November calendar won't come out until later in the summer, um, sometime. Um, so I really quickly, uh, I'm going to just give a, just a brief, you know, uh, one or two sentences about each of these 14 cases, the new granted cases for next term. Um, and, and just, just very, very quickly, I'm just kind of, kind of rush through these because, uh, it, there's, just, uh, um, uh, um, just, just to keep things moving. There, there's uh, two cases that are kind of uh, related to civil procedure type issues. One is called Republic of Sudan v. Harrison. And this is a case about the proper way to serve uh, serve a lawsuit on a foreign state. Uh, so if you're suing some foreign country, in this case, the Republic of Sudan, how do you serve them with your lawsuit? So it's just an odd, uh, unusual kind of uh, situation. And the other case is called Nutraceutical Corp v. Lambert. And this is a case about um, deadlines, and specifically it's a deadline to appeal a grant or denial of class certification. This is in a class action, the determination of whether um, whether the court is going to allow, to allow it to go forward as a class action. Um, and the question is, is that deadline, can the court grant exceptions to that deadline? Can the court grant equitable exceptions and say there's reason to allow that um, deadline to be extended or not? 
There's also an arbitration case, that, another arbitration. The court already has a few arbitration cases that it granted earlier, but there's another arbitration case that it granted this week called Henry Schein uh, Inc. v. Archer and White Sales Inc. And this is asking whether there's an exception to the enforcement of arbitration provisions where the claim of arbitrability is wholly groundless. Now, the idea here is normally um, in order to arbitrate, um, if, if, uh, if, Parties uh, have an agreement with an arbitration provision, the rule, and there's a, a question about whether the uh, particular dispute is actually arbitrable under that arbitration provision. That decision of whether it, it should be arbitrable actually goes to the arbitrator to decide in the first instance. Um, and here the question is: if this claim that there's that this this that, that, that this dispute should be arbitrated is wholly groundless, is that an exception? Can the court just decide that and not have to send it to an arbitrator first? Now, the court has uh, added two more cases, uh, uh, Indian law cases, and it already has at least one other Indian law case on its docket this year, but it added two more that are both related to uh, some treaty uh, issues. And one is about called Washington State Department of Licensing v. Cougar Den, Inc., and it asks whether an 1855 treaty gives the Yakima Nation Indians the right to avoid certain state taxes for off-reservation activities. And then another case called Herrera v. Wyoming asks whether an 1868 treaty protects the Crow Indians' right to hunt on federal in certain federal forest land. So those are the Indian law cases coming up. Um, and then there's a sovereign immunity case. This is a case called Franchise Tax Board of California v. Hyatt. Now, sovereign immunity is the idea that sovereign bodies, governments, are in some circumstances immune from being uh, um, uh, brought into court. They're immune from lawsuit. And this is specifically is a challenge to a previous Supreme Court decision called Nevada v. Nevada v. Hall um, that held that uh, a state, a U.S. state, is not immune from a lawsuit in the courts of another state. And this is a court a case asking the court to overturn that and find that states are immune from being brought um, sued uh, in the courts of, a, of a, another U.S. state. Uh, there's a tax law case called Dawson v. Steger, and this is asking under a particular federal statute whether a state is permitted to give tax exemptions for state law enforcement um, uh, personnel's retirement benefits without giving a corresponding tax exemption uh, for the uh, retirement benefits of federal law enforcement agents. Um, there's a social security uh, case. This is related to a specific uh, case about uh, evidentiary um, issues in social security disability proceedings. It's called uh, Beast Tech v. Berryhill. And it asks whether an expert witness in a social security disability proceeding um, has to provide evidence to, to, uh, to back up the testimony given uh, in, in, uh, in, in those proceedings. There's a couple intellectual property cases added this week. One patent law case called Helsin Healthcare v. Teva Pharmaceuticals. And this asks it whether a sale to a third party made under a confidentiality agreement constitutes prior art. So if before obtaining a patent on some invention, um, the, the, uh, inventing, uh, the, the inventor sells that product to some third party, but it's, it's kept, uh, out of the public. Is, is that prior art that would actually invalidate their attempt to later get a patent on that invention? And then there's a copyright question, and it's a very a very technical dispute. Uh, it's called Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corp v. WallStreet.com. And this one asks, what is the effective date of a copyright registration? Is the effective date of that when the application was delivered to the copyright office, or is it not until the copyright act office actually acts on the the uh, the um, the application? Um, 
Moving on, there's one uh, criminal law case about double jeopardy, the protection against double jeopardy. This is Gamble v. United States. And this is a challenge to something known as the dual sovereign doctrine. And that's the idea that in the United States, uh, the American system, a uh, a trial uh, on a criminal charge by one sovereign, so say the federal government or uh, the government of uh, one of the states, doesn't prevent a, a, a later tr- trial on the same uh, conduct by a different sovereign. So if uh, someone is tried in state court and whether they're convicted or acquitted, they can be tried again for the same conduct in federal court afterward. That's called the dual sovereign doctrine. And this is a challenge to that saying that that, that, that should be overruled and that double jeopardy should apply to prevent a second trial. Um, there's a case about uh, civil rights actions called Neves v. Bartlett. And this is a case that asks whether probable cause defeats a claim, a, a, a claim brought for a retaliatory arrest. Now, this is interesting because it looks like it's the uh, issue that uh, the court touched on this in a, in a case um, called Lozman, Lozman v. City of Riviera Beach this year, where the court decided on a very, very narrow grounds that didn't uh, that kind of um, left a lot of questions open about how broadly that would apply. And this looks like another case that's going to explore that that same question further. I haven't looked into it in any detail, but uh, it appears to be what that's that that case is about. Then there's a case about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, a federal law that imposes a certain um, requirements and restrictions on debt collectors. And the case is called Obdusky v. McCarthy and Holthus LLP. And it asks whether uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act applies to non-judicial foreclosure proceedings. And uh, I'll just be honest, I have no idea what what that's uh, specifically about. I don't know what that refers to uh, or anything about that case at this point. So so move on from there. There's one case about preemption, and preemption is the idea uh, that uh, federal law under the supremacy clause of the uh, U- U.S. Constitution, um, federal law uh, can preempt state law. That is, it, it prevents the state law from from having any effect uh, because the federal law is is, uh, is supreme over the state law. And in this case, it's called Merck Sharp and Dome Corp. v. Albrecht. It asks whether state law failure to warn warn claims. So that's a type of type of uh, tort law claim uh, where it's uh, imposing liability for a failure to warn about certain um, dangers of a product. Whether these state law failure to warn claims are preempted when the Food and Drug Administration rejects a drug manufacturer's proposal to warn about the risk. So if some, so the FDA re- rejects a proposal to warn about the risk, can someone nevertheless bring a state law claim about failure to warn on that risk? Um, so that's that's how that case is framed. So that's that's the 14 new cases the court asked uh, added this this week, and. You know, there's a number of interesting legal questions on the court's docket, but the really at this point there are no obvious high-profile blockbuster cases so far, and this is very different from last term. Where already on the October calendar, there are quite a few of the big cases that were really being closely watched. Um, and so far, looking not just at these 14 cases, but the entire 37 cases granted for next term, there's really no big culture war cases out there yet. There's no big partisan politics cases pitting Democratic versus Republican interests in some very strong way. Um, there's a lot of kind of narrower, smaller cases. Um, it's a big change from what we saw this term. It's just kind of a it's, – it's, it's interesting. It's always – when you're looking at the Supreme Court from term to term, uh, it's – you know, you're dealing with fairly small sample sizes, um, and there's always a question of how much of the change, the difference from year to year is due to, um, conscious, uh, uh, actions or, or, uh, or 
by the justices in, 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 um, you know, making certain decisions and how much of it is just a result of kind of random variation in the types of things that are being presented to the court and where they are actually seeing, you know, major divisions in the lower courts. Um, but it just seems that it's a radical shift uh, from what we saw this year, the, the highly contentious things to next year. And, you know, it may be that to some degree, it's a, a deliberate attempt, um, by some justices to maybe to, um, dial down the, uh, the, uh, the level of, uh, of disagreement somewhat uh, to try and try and uh, kind of um, rein things in from the highly contentious finish to this term where they ended in the final week with six opinions all breaking five to four and most of those five out of the six breaking uh, along conservative liberal uh, you know stereotypical lines uh, so maybe this is you know a conscious effort by some of the justices to um, to look for uh, some some less hot button cases to to fill up next term but but maybe not hard hard to hard to say. Um, so, so what comes next from here? Um, the court is, 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 uh, done for the term for now, but, um, in July, at some point in July, the court will typically will announce dates for summer orders lists. So a few dates in July where the court intends to, uh, issue summer orders lists. Now these are typically not very interesting. It's usually very routine matters. It's denials of petitions for rehearing, which are virtually denied at basically 100%. Uh, some attorney discipline notices, which are very automatic things at the Supreme Court and, and, uh, not of a lot of interest. So it's very routine. But, on rare occasions, it's occasional but rare, the court issues summer grants where it'll actually grant new cases over the summer. Uh, last year, the court granted one case uh, in its late August order list and that just added an, another case to its calendar there. It seems less likely this year, given that there's already a pretty full fall calendar, so, so the justices probably don't feel the need to, you know, uh, get court, uh, get more cases on the, uh, on the list right away. Um, but you never know. Now, throughout the summer, the court will respond to various uh, stay emergency stay applications. This will include uh, more death penalty stay applications as they come up over the summer, but also stay applications in other lower court litigation where where a party is uh, seeking to to stay a lower court uh, uh, lower court judgment from taking effect. And so, the court rules on those as they come uh, across during the summer. Um, but that's uh, that's about it for for um, the rest of the the rest of the summer. Now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, in sometime in mid-July, probably, the October argument calendar will come out. And the court tends to schedule the cases uh, roughly in the order they were granted. So the earliest granted cases would typically be on the uh, earliest calendar, roughly. But uh, first of all, it's very common, especially when there's a, when there's a lot of time between a, uh, when a case is granted and when it's going to be argued. So there's plenty of time for the briefing schedule. It's very common for the court to grant extensions to the briefing schedule. And this is routine for early spring grants. So these cases that are on next year's calendar that were uh, granted back in, in uh, you know, say February, um, most of those cases probably got some extensions uh, to their briefing schedule. So the uh, the dates on which all these cases become fully briefed when all the briefing is done doesn't exactly line up with the order in which they they're granted, but it's you know as a rough idea. The order in which they're granted is you know a rough idea of when these cases will be slotted into the argument calendar. But another exception is the court likes to, when it can, to group related cases together on the same day of argument when possible. So you'll see a lot of times when the argument calendar comes out, in particular day, there'll be two criminal cases or even two criminal cases on related subjects on the same day or two immigration cases on a day or two Indian law cases on the same day. So, you know, that's, again, not a hard and fast rule, but the court likes to do that. So so see that. So but there's no, no way of knowing exactly when any particular case will be scheduled until that calendar 
actually comes out, which again will be mid-July. And once that comes out, we'll start to get an idea of how the court's going to approach this. Do they add some three argument days to kind of bulk up the fall calendar? Is that something that they, uh, they, they try to do or, or not? Um, so we'll start to have a sense of that when the October calendar comes out. Now, when does the court come back? The court returns on the last Monday in September. So the court's oral arguments always start on the first Monday in October. Uh, that's their first day. Unless there's, uh, in some uh, cases, there's been holidays. For example, Jewish holidays, Jewish high holidays have fallen on the first Monday in October, and so the court has a holiday day or whatever. But normally, the first Monday in October is the first day of the court's uh, October oral arguments, and that's the start of the court's new term. But the court returns a week earlier on the last Monday in September and has what's known as the long conference. And this is a special conference where the court is considering all of the cert petitions that have accumulated over the course of the summer where the court has been off. And this, this, this is in excess of a thousand cert petitions given the current numbers of cert petitions that the court gets, um, in recent years. So in excess of a thousand cert petitions, the court will consider that conference. Now they don't actually discuss or consider the vast majority of those. They circulate lists ahead of time of the, the petitions that justices think are worthy of considering and, uh, and, and some, you know, subset of those that, that any of the justices have in, indicated are worth talking about are the ones that will actually get discussed at that conference. Um, but as a result of that long conference, a few days later, the court will issue grants coming out of that. And typically those cases will start getting slotted in to fill the, the January calendar and beyond uh, to, to fill up the, the later part of the court's um, term. Now, this the grants from the long conference is, is typically it's the single biggest grant day of the entire term. Uh, the court grants more more um, cases on that day than it does at any other point in the term. But if you look at it in terms of the uh, the kind of the percentage um, chance of, of 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 getting a grant based on the the number of petitions that are being reviewed, it's actually extremely low. The court sees so many uh, um, considers so many petitions, all of the petitions that have accumulated over the entire uh, summer. Um, that even uh, even the large number of uh, grants that it issue that it hands down, you know, maybe a dozen grants or or, or maybe more um, after the long conference is still a very very low percentage um, out of the all the petitions that were um, were up for consideration. So that's that's what we'll see at the end of uh, September, just before the oral arguments kick off at the beginning of October. Uh, one interesting question is why does the court take a summer recess at all? Um, the lower courts, the lower federal courts, and most of the state courts don't do that. They they continue to hear cases all year round, and because of that, they can continue issuing opinions all year round. The cases are coming up to the Supreme Court all year round. Um, so why do they do it? Well, you know, part of its tradition, part of it's just because they can. Uh, the justices enjoy having the time off. They enjoy traveling, um, teaching classes, things like that. Um, there's a, a quote that I came across, and I wish I tried to find it, but I couldn't, and I wish I could get the exact quote or identify which justice said it. But there was a quote from a justice, and this was back from uh, the early 20th century, 20th century, who said something, and this is a rough paraphrase, but something to the, to the effect of, um, the court is able to do 12 months work in 10, but we can't do it in 12. Uh, and it was uh, just the idea that there's, you know, burnout involved and uh, and the need for some some break in order for the court to operate at full efficiency. Um, and, you know, some have pointed also to the, the, the way the court breaks its work up into terms like this. 
um, has, you know, the beneficial effect of imposing a deadline on the court to get its work done. And the court is very good about getting all of its opinions issued by the end of June every year. And that's not always the case in many lower courts. In some lower courts, you know, certain cases, especially particularly tricky or difficult cases, can sometimes be sat on for extended period of periods of time. Um, and uh, litigants are, are familiar with uh, with this this situation, uh, and lawyers who you know who, who litigate in, in uh, state courts or lower federal courts are familiar with you know having argument or or you know having a fully briefed case and just waiting. Uh, for you know months and months on end and sometimes years in extreme cases before ever getting a decision and the Supreme Court doesn't have that issue but you know the trade-off there is you know the the argument that the the court's work is is very rushed and of somewhat lower quality uh, at the end of the term in June because they're, they're they're just rushing to try and get everything done so they can they can uh, get out the door but another benefit people have uh, have mentioned about this uh, this time off of the summer for the Supreme Court is that it's kind of a cooling off period. Um, there's uh, because of the the way the court's work is structured. There's a high proportion of the most contentious and, and divisive cases end up getting issued in late June. Uh, those cases are you know some of the take the cases that take the most time and take the longest to get in final form because of all of the back and forth and uh, between the you know competing opinions. And so there's a higher proportion of these 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 highly contentious cases at the end of the term. And having a few months off at the end of the term can kind of give the justices time to, to basically to just reset and give time for tempers to cool. And that may be very important for a, a very collegial institution where some of the members will work together for, for decades. Um, so that's just, you know, another possible uh, benefit uh, for, for structuring the court's work as it is. But again, you know, the, the court, you know, for the most part controls its own schedule and, and uh, you know, why do they do it? You know, because they can is probably the best explanation. So I'm going to conclude tonight by just just talking a little bit about Justice Kennedy. So yesterday he uh, issued a a, a, he, a letter um, announcing his uh, his retirement effective the end of July, um, and you know this wasn't unexpected. There's been talk about uh, a, a retirement Kennedy potentially retiring. Um, it's been speculation about it for a few years, but you know he's been very close lipped about it. Um, it's it's not clear that that anyone necessarily uh, beyond you know Justice Kennedy himself necessarily knew that this was coming until it came out yesterday even even uh it's 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 possible though 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 uh, you know I don't know that anyone knows for sure at this point uh, it's possible that even his colleagues on the court were not aware that he had made the decision to officially to retire this year until until he made the official announcement yesterday now maybe that's wrong and maybe they did know and everyone just kept a uh, closed lipped about it we don't we don't know for sure um the court has a has a uh, reputation of being um, relatively um, leak free, especially compared to the other branches of government. And, uh, and, uh, there's not, not a lot of, um, not a lot of leaks, not a lot of, uh, um, um, inside information, uh, gets out of the court on, on many, uh, subjects. So Justice Kennedy, I've mentioned, uh, earlier up at the, uh, top of the, uh, episode, he's, he's 81 years old, um, and he's been on the court for more than 30 years at this point. He's the longest currently serving justice and, and the last Reagan appointee uh, to remain on the the court, and and before that, before his uh, service on the Supreme Court, he was a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for almost thirteen years. So he's got over forty years of uh, of of, um, of service as a federal judge, um, leading to uh, to his his retirement today. Now he came to particular prominence 
um, after Justice O'Connor's retirement in 2006. Now, prior to her retirement, Justice O'Connor was referred to as the swing justice on the court. And, and what does that mean? Well, uh, Justice O'Connor was the median justice, meaning if you, if you kind of line the justices up uh, ideologically from left to right, um, Justice O'Connor was the, the judge who fell, uh, smack in the middle of that, uh, of the, of the nine justices. Um, and, you know, th- those type of, um, uh, measurements of political ideology, they're, they're very imprecise and there's a lot of disagreement about how to do it, but you can, it's, it's not that hard to, to give kind of rough, um, estimate of, uh, of, you know, left to right, you know, there may be some quibbling over, uh, you know, per- certain pairs of justices, which one is slightly more liberal or slightly more conservative than the other. But, um, it, but it's pretty clear that Justice O'Connor for, for, uh, quite a while was the, uh, median justice. And, um, upon her retirement and being replaced by a more conservative justice, Justice Kennedy fell into that slot. And both O'Connor and Kennedy were referred to often as swing justices because they, they didn't, uh, the, the court in, in both, uh, during both times, the court was, uh, generally divided basically five to four on more conservative leaning justices and more liberal leaning justices. But both O'Connor and Kennedy, um, had a, uh, history of somehow, sometimes siding with the, uh, more liberal wing of the court in certain areas in certain cases. Um, so they were, they were kind of considered the swing justices on the court. Now, Justice Kennedy, uh, once he he kind of assumed this median position, he you know was still um, looking at his record overall was uh, clearly a more conservative justice. He more often sided with the conservatives in kind of contentious cases, but he did definitely side with the liberals in certain key areas, um, and which you know made him important uh, um, to uh, the uh, the um, maintenance of the, a more liberal position in in certain areas of the law. Now it's interesting because this this um, Position as the the uh, you know swing justice, the median justice, is kind of double edged. It gave uh, Justice Kennedy a great deal of of power. He had a lot of um, ability to potentially shape the court's opinions or write uh, very influential concurrences um, because of his position there in the middle of the case. He was extremely frequently, when the court was divided five to four, he was in the majority very frequently. Um, it was uh, unusual. Um, for him to be in the minority on the, uh, the in the uh, dissent on those five four divided cases, so uh, though it happened from time to time, but he was often in the majority, so he had a lot of um, uh, opportunity to kind of wield his influence, um, especially as he was the the vote that was uh, often sought by litigant, litigants who who thought that it was a case that might split along ideo- ideo- ideological lines. Well, Kennedy was the vote that a lot of people hoped to get to sway to to go one way or the other. Um, but on the other hand. That position allowed him to kind of, um, you know, shape cases and, 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 uh, when he wrote, uh, for a divided court to kind of, um, demand certain compromises or to hold out, you know, somewhat idiosyncratic positions and was able to hold that line, um, because of the concern that, you know, the, against losing, losing his vote. Um, but that very, uh, kind of power may make some of his decisions more vulnerable to kind of, uh, Losing their, losing their, uh, their influence once he's no, no longer left on the court because he may lose opinions that once, once he is gone, there's really no one left on the court who really believes, uh, you know, full-throatedly in the, uh, the position as it was written by Justice Kennedy as it was, uh, actually taken. So that was seen after Justice O'Connor left, um, a lot of her kind of, uh, very, uh, um, uh, kind of signature positions that she had staked out 
um, as the median justice uh, started um, kind of uh, being whittled away at or overruled uh, one by one. And, uh, and so her, the influence she wielded as the swing justice um, made her, you know, somewhat uh, more uh, vulnerable to kind of, um, uh, you know, fading away once she, once she was no longer in that position and no longer on the court. So, you know, what, what's the, what's the, the legacy of, of, uh, Justice Kennedy? The most prominent, uh, area that gets, uh, brought up a lot is, is in the area of gay rights, where Justice Kennedy kind of staked himself out as, as the, um, the, the key, uh, player in a number of, of decisions. There were basically four major gay rights decisions, starting with Romer v. Evans in 1996, in 1996, which, which dealt with a, um, a state constitutional amendment which had, uh, prohibited um, the inclusion of uh, of uh, sexual orientation as a protected category under uh, anti-discrimination law, and that was overturned by the court. And later, Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, which um, which uh, found unconstitutional um, state bans on uh, on uh, um, homosexual uh, sexual activity. And then later, Windsor v. U.S. in 2013, and Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, and those are the two cases that with Obergefell resulted in. Um, the uh, legalization of same-sex marriage uh, nationally across the United States. And in all of those cases, Justice Kennedy wrote uh, the majorities for the court. Um, and so, so he, he clearly saw this as, um, as his, uh, uh, you know, part of his legacy and one of his major, um, uh, you know, areas of, of great influence on the court. Um, but another area where he was uh, kind of uh, stood out somewhat is the area of uh, free speech. He arguably had the most expansive um, view of free speech of any of the justices on the court. Uh, and this includes the kind of more, more traditional, um, areas of, of free speech, uh, protecting, you know, political dissent and, and things like that. But also, um, areas, uh, that, that have become much more, more common in recent years, but are much more controversial, especially among the, the political left, including things like campaign speech and, uh, more heightened protection for commercial speech, uh, speech in, in, uh, in advertising and in the commercial sphere. Um, and, you know, interestingly, it was in this final term of his that it seemed like these, these two areas where he'd really staked out, uh, you know, made his mark and kind of, uh, staked out a claim as a, as a, a champion, free speech and gay rights, uh, kind of seemed to, you know, come to a head, at least as the case was, was often framed in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, and, you know, some argue that that's, that's, you know, kind of the, the reason the case was decided as it was, was that Justice Kennedy, um, just didn't want to, uh, you know, tar his, his, uh, his legacy in either of those two areas with a decision that would have, um, would have cut back uh, in one way or another on, on, uh, his kind of gay rights legacy or his broad free speech legacy. And that, you know, that some have argued that that kind of led him to, to, uh, look for a way out in that, uh, uh in its final term. But, uh, you know, that's just, again, you know, speculation. Now, Justice Kennedy was 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 known for his particular style of opinion writing, which you know um, was was not always uh, he was not always uh, con- considered one of the um, the uh, uh, sharper uh, uh, stylists on the court. Um, he, his, his style was often described as florid. It was it was kind of subject to a lot of criticism for for what was sometimes regarded as overblown language. A particular um, phrase that comes from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that's an important um, uh, abortion case from the early 1990s, uh, there was a line that says, and I'll quote it here, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. 
and that 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 line became famous. It was later derided by Justice Scalia as the sweet mystery of life passage, and, and kind of got a lot of criticism as as kind of some uh, uh, hand wavy philosophy. And and even people who were in favor of his results, uh, so even for example, people who were very happy with the results of a case like Obergefell um, legalizing same sex marriage nationwide, um, some expressed uh, some a lot of displeasure with the actual way the opinion was written, and specifically about the legal analysis, which was um, considered by many to be very unclear as a doctrinal matter and not not uh, not laying down um, either uh, clear rules to be applied in future cases or a uh, clear approach of how to analyze um, the particular issues in a case. Um, so it's, it's unlikely he'll be, you know, um, um, regarded as one of the, the court's, uh, you know, great uh, legal writers or stylists. Um, as part of his legacy, although on the other hand, you know, because he was the author of some of these uh, very um, influential or very important opinions in the uh, the, the gay rights sphere, uh, you know, the, some uh, have seized on some of these passages that you know have been described by you know some lawyers as overwrought. Uh, some have seized on them as as um, they've been used in in, in for example in uh, in uh, in wedding ceremonies as uh, in language uh, describing uh, you know describing the uh, the importance and sanctity of marriage uh, from from uh, from his Obergefell decision, for example. Um, so so it's you know maybe it's in the eye of the beholder. Um, so Justice Kennedy he, he's uh, he's on his way out the door. So that obviously leaves the question about what happens next. Uh, who will be his replacement? Now President Trump has said that he is going to stick to his list of twenty five judges that he had. Um, he had already he has proposed and, and named as his 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 candidates his shortlist for the Supreme Court vacancy. Now this is a list he had previously um, before uh, for the uh, the Justice Scalia vacancy that was eventually filled by uh, Neil Gorsuch. He had proposed first uh, during the uh, presidential campaign a list of I believe uh, ten names, ten or eleven names, and then a, a later supplemental list. He he added another ten or eleven names, so he had a list of I believe twenty one names at the time to choose from. Um, later after, uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch was confirmed, at some point he, uh, he, he released another supplemental list of another five judges. So bringing the total up there when you remove Neil Gorsuch to 25 names on his, uh, his candidate list for, for this spot. Um, almost all of them are, are current judges, uh, federal and a few state judges. And already because of the names of these judges are out there, uh, you know, there have been, um, um, Kind of vetting campaigns already underway by various organizations on both sides, um, uh, looking into these judges and kind of uh, assembling, uh, uh, assembling, uh, research, opposition research and, and, uh, and research and support. And already there are public advertising campa- campaigns gearing up ever since, uh, since Kennedy's retirement yesterday. There's already been a lot of action on both sides, um, kind of gearing up to really have a big, uh, public, uh, push either in support or in opposition to whoever ends up being named uh, by President Trump as the as the nominee for this position, and you know it appears that the same uh, main advisors that uh, that uh, guided the Justice Gorsuch's selection before um, are are involved in in right now. Don McGahn, the White House Counsel, and and Leonard Leo, uh, who is the Executive Vice President of the Federal Society, and that's a organization of lawyers of. Uh, uh, Primarily conservative and, liber- and libertarian lawyers, um, and he's someone who's very tied in uh, th- due to that position with the uh, conservative legal movement broadly. Um, and they they are they appear to be again the uh, the the um, uh, 
primary advisors on uh, on uh, President Trump's selection. And there have been uh, some in the just in the past day since uh, since uh, Kennedy's announcement, there have been some uh, short lists floated of uh, of uh, five or so uh, people on the list who are who are supposedly the top contenders that are being um, um, uh, considered right now for this position. Um, but there'll be a lot more uh, a lot more news about that as the as the uh, process plays out. So, so what's going to happen now? Um, the, the, uh, in theory, there, there's enough time, uh, right now, depending on how fast things move with the Senate and, and assuming the Senate, um, uh, works on this, uh, through the summer. Um, there's, there's time for someone to be nominated and confirmed, uh, prior to the start of the, uh, the October term. Um, and, and it appears that there's, uh, there's the efforts are underway, uh, by, uh, Senate Republicans and the, uh, and the Trump administration to try and, uh, move things so that, so that, that, uh, that does happen, but, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. Now, I, due to the, uh, the, you know, Senate maneuvering during the, uh, Gorsuch nomination, um, uh, process, uh, the filibuster on, uh, Supreme Court nominees was eliminated. So meaning that, uh, the, uh, the confirmation of uh, whoever gets nominated will, will only take a bare majority in in the Senate. There'll be no opportunity for a minority to filibuster the confirmation. Um, so that you know that limits some of the options to Democrats looking to um, to to block uh, a uh, a Trump nomination to the court. The uh, the Republicans have only a very narrow majority. It's a uh, fifty one to forty nine in the Senate. So the you know there, there'll be efforts to to try and uh, flip uh, a uh, a more moderate Republican or, or you know somehow have leverage uh, to push the administration toward a more uh, 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 a less conservative nominee. Um, it's uh, the uh, at this point it seems like commentators think that that's unlikely to be successful. But uh, again, everything remains to be seen. But then there's there's a lot of talk about uh, other procedural tactics that the Democrats might be able to use to impede or delay the confirmation, things they can use to slow down the Senate, uh, to uh, require much more time to be spent to kind of drag things out. Um, of course, the, you know, given the, the high importance that Republicans have clearly given to um, judicial nominations generally, but the Supreme Court uh, in particular, uh, any use of those tactics might lead to the Republicans um, kind of further using the so-called nuclear option to uh, to in, uh, implement rule changes to remove any of those procedural tools that the Democrats attempt to use. Um, that would require uh, keeping all of the Republicans on board for for that kind of strategy because the the uh, the majority is so narrow. Um, but you know it, it, that's uh, potential ways that this might um, play out. Um, but you know, it seems, it seems like, uh, there's at least a, a strong possibility that, uh, the, uh, um, the Senate majority and the, and the president will be able to get this, uh, confirmation, uh, completed, um, prior to the start of the term in October. But, uh, again, that's a ways off right now. And, uh, and who knows how the whole process will play out both in the court of a public court of public opinion and, uh, and in, in the Senate. Now, it's what's going to happen uh, when uh, when Justice Kennedy's replacement comes on? Well, you know, we can't obviously we don't know who it's going to be. There's uh, 25 justices, ju- uh, potential justices on that list, and you know they're 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 not all the same. They all are you know uh, well established uh, in kind of con- conservative legal um, uh, circles, um, but um, but. Uh, one, one thing, uh, you know, that's been, it's been said many times before by, by justice on the court is that, that, uh, the addition of any new justice, uh, can, uh, 
make it a whole new court. Any change in court personnel can lead uh, potentially to some unexpected realignments. A new justice can introduce uh, new approaches or new priorities or emphases that might change the way doctrine is shaped or the way other justices view certain cases. Um, and it's not just about the voting, about the specific positions they take, but the ability and willingness of a particular um, justice to work with other justices to, for example, to to uh, to reach agreement on uh, on specific language and opinions, or to come to compromises. And you know, this is um, arguments are made that the interpersonal relationships matter a lot on the court. Also, the ability to get along with other justices may lead uh, someone to have more influence on the court. Uh, or looking at it from the opposite direction, there's, there's the question of which of the current justices on the court will be most able to influence the new justice, whoever he or she is that comes on board. And so it's, you know, it's impossible to predict exactly how this will all play out. Um, but a lot of the attention has been on Justice Kennedy's major 5-4 decisions in which he sided with the liberal wing of the court, um, because these seem like the areas that are most vulnerable to um, to a uh, change uh, upon the uh, confirmation of a more conservative justice. Now, according to Adam Liptak, the reporter for the Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times, uh, there have been 51 cases uh, with this pattern where it's uh, Justice Kennedy plus the liberal justices in the majority. Uh, so that's kind of the, the universe of, of the kind of uh, high risk cases to to result in a um, a, uh, a flip. Uh, upon a, the confirmation of a more conservative justice. I'm going to talk just about uh, three of the, the most high-profile areas. And the first one is obviously abortion. Um, now, Kennedy was not a consistent vote with the liberal side in the abortion cases. Just for example, uh, he wrote the majority opinion for the court uh, for, the, for the court's conservative wing in the 2007 case called Gonzalez v. Carhartt, and that was a, ca- a case that upheld the constitutionality of the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. Um, you know, so he, he has in, in some cases like that, he has sided with the um, conservative uh, side in, in the uh, the in those cases. But he has um, in uh, multiple occasions been a crucial vote also on the more liberal side in these cases. And key cases, Planned Parenthood v. Casey from 1992. And that is the, the key case that, that endorsed. Uh, Roe v. Wade's constitutional protection of abortion rights, while at the same time modifying the legal standard that had been originally established in Roe v. Wade and and, uh, and leaving with the Casey standard that's now the, the governing uh, um, standard in, in uh, abortion rights cases. And in that case, Kennedy was the crucial fifth vote uh, in the majority and co-wrote the majority opinion in that case, along with Justices O'Connor and Souter. Um, more recently, in 2016, there was a case called Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, and that was a case involving so-called uh, TRAP laws, that TRAP stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers, and that's a term for um, laws that impose regulatory requirements on abortion providers that, um, that while they're, they're facially directed at medical health and safety concerns, according to abortion rights proponents, they're actually intended to and designed to to burden abortion providers and reduce the availability of abortion services. That's this concept of trap laws, and that was uh, what was at issue in Whole Women's Health. And Kennedy, in that case, joined with the four liberal justices uh, in the majority, finding uh, certain key portions of the Texas law that was being challenged unconstitutional. So. You know, he's been a significant vote in some of the abortion cases. The replacement of Kennedy with a more conservative justice could result in significant changes, you know, which might be just allowing um, 
additional regulation of abortions, for example, uh, along the lines of the whole women's health case and these uh, trap laws. Um, but it could even potentially mean overruling Roe v. Wade and Casey altogether. Uh, you know, those are those are certainly possibilities that are out there uh, with a, a more conservative justice in his place. Um, another area is affirmative action. Now, in affirmative action cases, Kennedy had typically voted with the conservatives in opposing um, race-based affirmative action uh, programs. And just as an example, the key, the important cases in 2003, there were a pair of cases called Grutter v. Bollinger and Grass v. Bollinger. Um, and the Grutter case upheld the University of Michigan Law School's affirmative action program, while the Grass case struck down the University of Michigan's undergraduate affirmative action program. And those were both, both decisions were five to four with O'Connor as the swing vote, kind of going one way in one case and going the other way in the other. But Justice Kennedy voted against both programs. He was in the, the, uh, opposition to those programs in both of those cases. But there was a, a major recent case that went the other way, and this was a case called Fisher v. University of Texas. And that was a challenge to the University of Texas at Austin's affirmative action program. And in that case, Kennedy voted with the uh, liberal justices to uphold that program. Um, so, you know, the replacement of uh, Kennedy could, this is another space where the replacement of Kennedy could, you know, result in a, a solid five-justice block um, against uh, race-based affirmative action programs. Now, a major focal point in affirmative action litigation right now uh, is about allegations of discrimination in college admissions against students of Asian ancestry. Um, and the case kind of framed in that, in that, uh, in that way could make its way to the Supreme Court uh, in the next few years. So that, that's something that uh, may be on the table um, with a new conservative justice. And then again, there's uh, gay marriage, the uh, area that we had talked about before. The two key uh, gay marriage cases, Obergefell v. Hodges and before it, um, the Windsor case, both of those were five to four decisions. Um, and, you know, a more conservative justice could theoretically uh, take steps to reverse or cut back on that right. Now, you know, there's no way of knowing exactly how these areas would play out. Different potential nominees have, you know, various divergent views. Many of them haven't taken public positions on a lot of controversial um, topics. And there are some divergent views on many issues within the kind of broad conservative legal movement. You know, if I, if I had to just give a gut assessment based on, you know, what I've seen and, and, and uh, kind of the array of opinion, I would say that the, the, um, the kind of diversity of views and the, is is uh, most true with respect to the same sex marriage case. The, the, actually, the uh, the the pro um, same sex marriage position had a number of uh, very prominent conservative defenders. These include, for example, uh, the co-founder of the Federal Society, uh, Stephen Calabresi, uh, a professor who who wrote. Um, an article in defense of a constitutional right to same-sex marriage before Obergefell was decided. And also, there's the, the popular opinion, which has continued to shift in favor of same-sex marriage and, and reached uh, record highs, new highs of approval levels in 2018. So, you know, that that's a uh, you know, reason to think that that may be a, uh, you know, area that's less likely to, to be overturned even by a more conservative justice, though, though you know, there's still uh, certainly... Um, uh, many in the conservative legal world that hold opinions in the opposite direction. Um, I think the, the, uh, 
the diverse the the area that's probably in, in most danger is probably the race based affirmative action area where there's among the conservative legal uh um uh community there there's a fairly widespread um endorsement of a, a color blind approach to um to race based programs um including uh inf- affirmative action programs um so that seems like an area that seems very likely to uh to um be uh uh to be subject to uh, change under a, uh, uh, a different uh, justice. And abortion seems somewhere more in the middle. There are a lot of conservatives who are very unhappy with the Roe v. Wade decision and the subsequent uh, abortion case law after that. Um, but there are many who, who seem to have no real stomach to actually overturn it, while at the other, at the same time, others are eager to do so. Um, so, so it's you know, it's it's uh, anyone's guess whether whether uh, you know. Uh, exactly what the result would be, but, you know, it could be anywhere from, um, you know, some slightly more modest restrictions to, to wholesale overruling. Uh, of course, the composition of the court might change further before any of these issues reach the justices. Uh, cases uh, come to the court as they come. The court has, you know, some ability. The court can pick and choose which of the cases that are presented to it it takes. But, you know, it only has uh, you know, the options of those cases that people bring to it in any given year to choose from. So sometimes it takes a while before a, a particular case that really presents one of these issues squarely makes its way up to the court. So so we don't know how soon the court will uh, have the opportunity to rule on these particular issues. But in any case, there's a very real possibility of major changes to the doctrine in these areas, including possibly wholesale overruling, but uh, um, just uh, that remains to be seen in the future. Just something to watch uh, as we go forward. And I think I'll close with that. Um, that brings us to the end of this live stream episode. Uh, with the end of the term here, uh, this podcast is going to go on hiatus for a bit. I'm not sure exactly when I'll be back, so I strongly encourage anyone who hasn't done so already to please subscribe either to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or to the audio podcast to make sure you don't miss anything when we return. Um, and as always, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at CountingTo5.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page, tweet at Counting to Five, or send an email to Mike at CountingTo5.com. Um, please uh, uh, send me feedback. I'd love to hear uh, whatever you have to say um, about the uh, about the podcast. I want to conclude by thanking everyone who's been following the, the podcast, and especially those of you who've reached out with comments or questions or feedback of any kind. I really appreciate hearing from listeners, and if you haven't done so already, it's never too late to leave a comment, shoot me a quick email. I make an effort to respond to everyone, and I really hope to hear from you. And with that... Uh, Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.